scripture for this morning is found in the first epistle of John, 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. Let us hear God's word. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And with such, Heavenly Father, the King of Kings, your Son, our Lord Christ Jesus, is pictured as going forth, as conquering, Lord. I pray, Heavenly Father, that the edge of these words not be dulled this morning. I ask, Heavenly Father, that I would speak in accordance with your word, which alone is holy and true, without fault, without error, without blemish. I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would apply it to this poor heart. I pray that you would apply it to all here. We would seek to be obedient to you, Lord. We would seek to glorify your name. Equip us, Heavenly Father. We ask this in the name of our Lord, our Savior, Christ Jesus. Amen. Brethren, the the exhortation that the Apostle puts before us this morning is very clear. It's plain. Beloved, let us love one another. His words are simple, direct, and expressed with the affection that befits this exhortation. He calls them beloved. He has said much the same thing already much in this letter. He has taught it as doctrine, teaching us what sort of a person a Christian is. The one who loves his brother abides in the light. Chapter 2, verse 10. In chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. A few verses later in 3, verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in 
death. He's taught it as doctrine. The apostle then grows bolder, making it an ought for us. In verse 16 of chapter 3, we know of by this that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. And then bolder yet, two verses later, little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. What's his authority for saying such things except Christ Jesus? Down in verse 23 of the third chapter, this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. John has so sung this theme many times before in this letter, and it's clear from what he says that it was a constant exhortation at the first appearance of the gospel. Now, we should not think that John is merely repeating himself here. An old man, mind failing, just saying the same thing again and again. That's not the case. But let me ask you this. What if it were the case? It would still be scripture. Inspired by God, profitable for teaching, for proof, for correction, for training in righteousness. It would still equip you for every good work. Think how God works providentially in those he inspired. If, and if he inspired an old man to repeat to you again and again, let us love one another, we shouldn't despise his words, but rather be ashamed that we are people of such poor hearing, such lack of understanding, such hard hearts that the Lord in his perfect wisdom inspired such repetition to beat it into us. But as I said, this is not mere repetition. It is wonderful and glorious variation or development. Each time he says it, he says it in a slightly different way. And each time connects it to a different facet of God and his work towards us. He has given us reasons for that love. He has linked that love with the glorious light of God. That true light that even now is shining. He has connected it to the having the possession of eternal life of being born of God, of being one of his children. He has shown forth the nature of that love, as Paul does in 1 Corinthians 13, that its pattern is not murder. Its, pa- its pattern is the laying down of one's life, the pattern of Christ, not the pattern of Cain. It is not repetition, but development, like the repeating of a theme in a symphony. Altered each time so that a new glory is put before us. Let us love one another. Now, I want to contrast that with how the world speaks to us about these things. In case you haven't noticed, for about the last 40 years or so, we've been exhorted in our culture to love one another. Have we not? Let me tell you a story about that. A few months ago, I was taking a cue from you, Greg, and catching a few minutes at Java J's. Not for coffee, but for a sandwich. So I could have a meal and do some studying. I think I was preparing for the last sermon I gave. I was working on that, thinking about Christ having come in the flesh. And as I thought about the incarnation and its relation to the kind of love that 
to which John exhorts us. In this passage and before in chapter 3, a song came over the speakers. One of the memorable anthems of the late 60s, popularized by, I didn't know this, I had to look it up, by a group called the Youngbloods. I'm not going to sing it for you. Don't worry about that. But I'll tell you the lyrics, and you can show me how many of you recognize it. Come on, people now. Smile on your brother. Everybody get together. Come on and love one another right now. How many people recognize that? Okay, lots of hands. It's familiar. We've heard this. And as I listened to it, I thought not how similar to God's word it is, but how different it is to God's word. God's word shows me what love is, what is harmonious with it, what is contrary to it. God's word gives me reasons for love. This song tells me nothing about love. How to identify it? Apparently it has something to do with smiling. Apparently it has something to do with peace and absence of fear. As for reasons to love, the song tells me explicitly that I'm not supposed to know the reason. It's enough to know that the dove's on the wing. Now, we might be thankful for the sentiments of that song. After all, they could have been a whole lot worse. But if that's all we can manage, come on, try and love one another, people, now. If that's all we can do, it gives us no reason to love, no way to know what love is. Why not the next moment go ahead and give sympathy to the devil? Is it any surprise that death and mayhem followed so quickly at rock festivals after Woodstock? Read about the festival at Altamont at the end of 1969. That was the one where I believe the security was provided by the Hells Angels. And ask yourselves, why not? Given how so-called love was presented and encouraged me, prove to me that that depravity was contrary to it. These words from that song are as ineffective as those from the singers on the stage trying to calm people down. The people weren't calmed down. Enough with the sad way that the world would encourage us to love. John doesn't teach us that way. He has shown us the nature of love and he has given us reasons for it. And this, and in this passage, he unfolds more reasons for us. Let us turn from the ineffective words of man to the word of God. John straight away gives us a reason for love. In, in verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another for or because love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. In this verse, John tells us where love comes from, what its source, what its fawn is, God himself. Anything that can properly be called love comes from God. And in speaking of God, all that we know of God from scriptures, Old Testament and New, come to bear on this. And so John, like a poet, expresses in a few words immensities. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the covenants, the God who spoke to Moses, who led the people out of Egypt, 
who gave them the promised land, who chose David, who sent them into captivity in Babylon and brought them back. This is the God of which John speaks. And this, brothers, limits what we can properly call love, does it not? The world calls love an ever-increasing number of things that the Christian can only call hatred. But the words of John here do not allow us to call whatever we want to love. He exhorts us to love one another. He has already shown us the pattern for this in Christ laying down his life for us. And hence we have to confess love in this passage is the love. It's this love. It's this sort of love. It's the only thing that's properly called love. Now, this plea of John's might be ineffective that love comes from God were it not for the force of the words that immediately follow it. They describe the relation of the Christian to that God who is the source of love. And everyone who is born of God, everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Here are two different descriptions of the Christian. Let's take each one of them in turn. Born of God. This takes us back to the theme that dominates much of chapter 3, that of abiding in life rather than death. Looking to that eternal life, the promise which he himself, God, has made to us. Think of the words John has written. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. And such we are. End of chapter 2, beginning of chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 9. No one born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Do you see the logic that John is using? It is fitting that those born of God practice the love that comes from God. It's fitting. It's appropriate. This logic is also given by Peter in his first epistle, chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For, again, because... You have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring word of God. Not only born of God, but also knows God in the passage this morning. That calls to mind all that John has said before with regard to knowing God. 1 John 2 verse 3 By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Chapter 3, verse 6. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Again, the logic is much the same. The one who knows God, not knows of him, but knows him with an intimate love, 
ought to love the brethren because love is of this God that he knows of. It's among the commandments that he keeps. The lack of that love is a sin he will not persist in. So that's the force of those words, born of God and knows God. But I'm not, actually, I'm not sure John had to add those words for the force of those words to be there. And here's the reason why. If you look at what John has said before in the first six verses of this chapter, you have a recurring phrase. If you look at the page, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. You are from God, little children. We are from God. And then in this morning's passage, he says, for love is from God. Well, he's just told them three times that the Christian is from God, and then he tells them that love is from God. Should we not then show such, since both we and it are from God? Do you feel the weight of the apostles' argument here? <clears throat> Think of this sort of language, from God. Let's come up with a few analogies. Let's think geographically. Being from someplace. Let's, let's suppose that somebody told you he was from Puerto Rico, like my wife is from Puerto Rico. <clears throat> Wouldn't you be a bit surprised if the person didn't speak any Spanish? He says he's from Puerto Rico, but he doesn't speak Spanish. He's, moreover, you find out that he's unfamiliar with rice and beans, this, this is strange, too. It has no particular care for mangoes. <clears throat> no knowledge of the music of the place. Strange. Someone from a place and yet no, bearing no signs of being from that place. You might suspect that he was lying, wouldn't you? Or think of from in a genetic sense. Being from certain parents. The natural children of parents bear a resemblance to the parents. If a child claimed to be the natural child of parents to whom he bore no resemblance, again, we would have reason to doubt the claim. So too, someone claiming to be from God and yet showing no love for one another when that love comes from God. We should love one another because love is, is of or from God as we are. But the Apostle John goes further, for he continues in verse 8 along these lines. The one who does not love God does not, I'm sorry, the one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. That's always interesting to ask the question why he why a writer doesn't phrase it one way versus the way that he does it can be a dangerous way of asking the question but it can bear some fruit john does not say that the one who does not love god does not know god for god, love is of god true enough it'd be very symmetrical he'd start the same place he ended up 
That's the sort of thing I would have come up with. Okay, I like symmetry. That's the way I would have phrased it. John doesn't do that. He gives us something better. John circles around the subject but ends up higher and loftier than he was when he started out. This is not a recapitulation, but a further opportunity taken to show forth a glory. God is love. How can we adequately express this? I fear that I'm not going to do this justice. I pray that I don't do it any injustice. If I do any injustice to this, I hope my vain patter will vanish from your ears and the memories are replaced by thoughts of godlier men. But can we not say this? Love is not merely an attribute of God among many, but is so central to his being, so much a part of his essence, that it warrants a noun, not an adjective. Not God is loving, which is true, or even God is very loving, true again, but God is love. Love is not just one of the things God does, more or less incidental, but it is what God is in his being. Can you see everything that scripture says God does and has done and will do? Do you see that as love? His justice, his righteousness included? The force of what John has said is now redoubled. Let us think of the phrase, knows God, to show this. I might know someone and yet not know something incidental about him or her. But something so richly touching the core of that person, if I didn't know that, you'd have reason to wonder if I knew them, right? And you might forgive me if I said I knew someone and yet I could not tell you his or her favorite flower. But you would be alarmed if I could not tell you whether it was a him or a her, Something so central to that person's being, right? So too, someone claiming to know God and yet not loving one another. How can you know God when God is love and not know this? God is love is a popular quote. Only the other night I saw it on a license plate. I fear that it is often used not to reform our view of love, but to create an idol. But reform our understanding of love, it must. Do you see love, pure and unsullied, in the covenant that was made with Abraham, confirmed to Isaac and Jacob? In the covenant made with David? Surely you should, since those point to Christ, by whose love we have so greatly profited. Do you see love unblemished as ours never is in the burning bush shown to Moses? When we speak of God and say that he is love, do you hear the call call to remove your sandals? For the ground that you stand on is holy ground. Do you see love in the taking from Egypt or even more difficult in the falling of that generation in the wilderness? They were those with whom God was angry. Do you see God's love in the captivity in Babylon? Would you have a God of love and yet not justice as seen in righteous wrath? 
question, do we dare turn this around and say that love is God and then inevitably fill the word love with any meaning we want to, a meaning fashionable to to the day? If so, we will have created an idol for ourselves. We must bear in mind and even mourn our hearts this. For God, our God, is a consuming fire. It is not only this morning's passage that uses language like God is. The author of Hebrews here, who has said, our God is a consuming fire, has taken that from Deuteronomy, chapter 4, verse 24, where it is written, so watch yourselves. This is starting in verse 23. So watch yourselves that you do not forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you. And make for yourselves a graven image in the form of anything against which the Lord your God has commanded you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. The writer of Hebrews is written in the same vein, warning his readers, which in God's providence includes his church throughout all time, includes ourselves, warning his readers to reverence and awe. In chapter 12, verse 25, see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. Jesus is greater than Moses. Then he quotes from the passage in Haggai that Steve read a few minutes ago. And then says this in verse 28. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. And then he says this. Let love of the brethren continue. An acceptable service. And the first thing that comes to the mind of this author is love of the brethren. He goes on and says it comprises hospitality, a great concern of the Apostle John as well, concern for those persecuted for Christ's name. We love the brethren not only because God is love, but also, apparently, because our God is a consuming fire. Even in the short epistle of John, we have another such statement, a God is type statement, near the very beginning of the letter. Chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. I would think here God's holiness, his moral perfection, Absolute purity, righteousness are in view. For immediately John continues to say, if we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. What John immediately turns to is our walk, the whole of our conduct, and whether it is in keeping with any claim of fellowship with this one who is light. And of course, that eventually turns to in chapter 2, the one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness till now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. 
If we have reason for love of the brethren since God is love, we also have reason since God is light. His holiness and moral perfection are so much a part of his being that John also here uses the noun. Love, justice, moral perfection are all so much a part of God's being that these attributes are not merely given as adjectives. All are tied to reasons for loving the brethren. But here in 1 John, we have the most direct linkage. For God is love. If we claim to know him, we must love. Let us keep ourselves from idols. If God is love, in what way do we see that love expressed? Is it a love that's so airy that it never touches us? Never. It was entwined in all that I mentioned before with regard to the covenants made, with regard to the taking of the people out of Egypt, sending them to Babylon, bringing them back. Much else, but chiefly in the work of Christ Jesus. We see that in our passage this morning. For John continues in verse 9, By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. And in this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Here we have our third reason for love. If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. In other words, we are not <clears throat> we are not only from God, as this love is, and not only know God who is love, but our being from God, our being born of God, our knowing God, all that comes from God having loved us. All of these things are proof of being loved of God, loved of God in such a way that we must love one another in turn. The argument is intensified yet further. John is relentless, isn't he? What love have you received in Christ, brethren? God sent his only begotten into the world so that we might live through him. This is the promise, eternal life. It was with the Father and was manifested to John and to the others. This is eternal life, that you may know the Father, the only true God, and Jesus Christ who was sent. Was this a deserved love? A love given to us in return for love on our part? No, not that we loved him. We were by nature children of wrath, sinful against the God who made us. But he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, to bear the wrath, to turn it aside from us. And so we read in First John, the beginning of chapter 2, And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Think what Christ has accomplished that John has given testimony to in this brief letter. Chapter 3, verse 5. You know that he appeared 
for this purpose, I'm sorry, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. And then down in verse 8, the Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. Or earlier, 1 John 1 verse 7, But if we walk in the light and he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Is this not cause for rejoicing? Is this not cause for singing praises? Do I hear any alleluias? Alleluia. He died for us. In verse 16, chapter 3, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. And there it is again. Unfeigned love, not merely in word, but in deed. Love without hypocrisy, love that would give life or the world's goods, is the proper response to that love that we have seen in Christ Jesus. Alleluia's certainly should be in words, but not mere words, but shown in love for the brethren. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And that leads to one further reason for love that I believe the apostle gives to us. A staggering one, I think, and a painful one. And it is put forth in verse 12. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Now, when we come to this verse, we are faced with a puzzle. Why mention here that no one has seen God at any time? Now, so much of what John says is in circles and you see him pick up themes and words from before and this seems to come from seeming nowhere it's only seeming nowhere not really nowhere it's not that it isn't true but why state that truth here why does he say it here what connection does it have to anything well let's focus on the word see okay, no one has seen God at any time And then think back to verse 9 about what was manifested, what was shown, made visible to us. In verse 9, the love of God in the sending of Christ. Very thing with which the apostle opened the letter. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also. So, John attests to what has been seen in the past, for him, the recent past, which manifested the love of God. He also, in First John, talks about the future fruition of that love, and that's also something that's going to be seen. In First John 3, verse 2, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it is not yet, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him. Oh, blessed thing, because we will see him 
just as he is. This hope of glory. In both of these sites is manifested the love of God in the first advent of Christ and the second advent of Christ. The fruition of those things. But between these two, between the two advents, what is seen? I'm not asking what is heard, which is the preaching of the word. But what is seen? Not God in his essence, for no one has seen God at any time, not before, not now. How now is the love of God manifested? Well, here we have it. I think verse 12 tells us this. I don't think this is the only thing that verse 12 says, but I think it's part of it. If we love one another, his love is perfected in us. Perfected. Not in the sense of faults being corrected or gaps being filled up, but in the sense of being brought to its proper goal, bearing its proper fruit. John's used the same sort of language before, chapter 2, verse 5. Whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God, has truly been perfected. Here, the proper goal, the proper fruit of this love is the keeping of God's word, the obeying of his commands. And prominent among those, in this letter certainly, is what? Love of the brethren. This love will bear its proper fruit And that fruit will be seen. It will be obvious. It will be on display. In the time between the advents, it is how the love of God is shown forth. Think of where else John has said that no one has seen God. It's in his gospel, first chapter, verse 18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father... He has explained him. Think about the logic there. No one has ever seen God, but but Jesus has explained him, or perhaps more clearly, made him known or declared him. Philip asks for that all-sufficient vision of the Father, and what does Jesus say in reply? Have I been with you so long? Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? No one has seen God, but Jesus has made him known. Now that Jesus has returned to the Father, how to make him known? By the word, preaching, yes, but how to show it forth? Do you remember what Jesus said? John 13, verse 35, By this, all men will know that you are my disciples. How? If you have love for one another. When did he tell them this? He told them this right after he told them that he was going away. To where they could not come, not yet at least, He was going to no longer himself be manifest. And it is at that point that he gives them the command that John repeats so often in this epistle. Love one another. His love will continue to be manifested in that proper bearing of fruit. No one has seen God, but his love is manifested in the brotherly love of his saints. Why love? Because God, who is love and is the fountain of all such, is shown forth in it. I said this was painful. 
It is staggeringly painful. All those other reasons for love of the brethren, how God so loved us to our everlasting benefit, how that love could come from no other than the God who is love, now is crowned with the privilege and the awesome responsibility of showing forth what is invisible by our brotherly love. Our love, my love, show forth God's love. I, the unkind, the ungrateful, I'm to show this forth. Lord, it's not in me to do that. Have me preach the decrees of God. Have me preach doctrines of election, but show forth your love. Paul's description of the nature of love in 1 Corinthians 13 reads like a sentence against me. It's beautiful, but when I look at myself, how much of it do I see in myself? I can be justly accused of not loving the brethren. How many of you have a complaint against me? That I have not loved you, brothers, as I should. Perhaps it wouldn't surprise you that at least twice to my recollection I've been accused of exactly this, and my conscience can hardly deny it. And perhaps you think, only twice? (laughs) Maybe perhaps much more would be deserved. Prayers forgotten or mislaid, promises left unkept, neglected or forgotten as well, words unspoken or misspoken badly. A host of things like these confirm the accusations. You may think me a hypocrite this morning for daring to preach on this topic. We are by nature so blind that we're oblivious to the ways in which we fail to love. We, I. I would wish that I were alone in this. No Christian should, being miserable in such things, desire company in that misery. I would wish I were the sole case of this, but I am sadly confident that I'm not alone in this. That John has to keep repeating this refrain, let us love one another. That God the Holy Spirit so inspired this apostle of love to repeat and to buttress with so many different arguments that which shouldn't need an argument also convinces me that it is not merely in these cold times that our love grows cold. Love that should be fervent, cooling off to room temperature. Even from the early times, we could be like those of Ephesus, leaving our first love. If you are like me, despairing when this responsibility is put before you of showing forth God and his love, Remember the Apostle John who puts these words in front of you. Let's remember a couple of stories about John. Jesus had just told his disciples again, this was like the second time, that the Son of Man would be delivered to the chief priests, the scribes. He would be condemned, handed over the Gentiles, humiliated, and killed. But he would rise again on the third day. And then what happens? So up come John and James to ask Jesus something. They ask Jesus, one to sit on the right hand, one to sit on the left hand in his glory. Jesus tells them that they didn't know what they were asking. 
You can find this in Mark chapter 10. Can't believe that they did that at that time. It's very similar to what Pastor Randy preached to us about last Sunday. The other ten were indignant. And Jesus had to teach them then, as he did that night that he was betrayed, the importance of servanthood, of how they needed to be different than the Gentiles, who those in authority lorded over the others. Here is the apostle of love, through ambition, causing trouble amongst the brethren. Or, the other time, he and his brother wanted to call down fire from heaven to consume a village. It happened to be a village of Samaritans who did not receive Christ. The sons of thunder were rebuked, just like they didn't know what they were asking here. They didn't know what spirit they were of. Again, this is that same John. I say these things not to cast a shadow upon this great apostle whom Jesus loved, but rather to show forth what Christ's love can accomplish in a man. And so to encourage you and to encourage me. The love amongst brethren is to be on display before the world. Love the brotherhood, so says Peter in his letter, chapter 2, verse 17. It is amongst the ways in which, in which we keep our behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander us as evildoers, they may, because of our good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. For such is the and then later, for such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. That's in the context of submission to authorities. But I would think it would also be true for the love of the brotherhood that he shortly exhorts them to. Show forth the God who is love in our love for one another. We are like many, I think, among the recipients of John's letter. Those who love Christ, though they have not seen him. And who believe in him, though they do not see him now, just like those to whom Peter wrote. They may not have had the privilege of seeing Christ, and we 2,000 years later definitely haven't. But they and we share Christ's blessing upon them that was told to Thomas. We share the promise of seeing Christ face to face, no longer through a glass dimly. But in the meantime, showing forth God's love and the love that we have for one another. Not in us to do that? Of course not. But God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. So says his word. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. I pray, Heavenly Father, that in your mercy, you would reveal to us the hardness of our hearts. Lord, you've have even give us, given us imaginations. And one godly way that we can use those, Lord, is to put ourselves in other people's place and see, Lord, the ways in which we are being unloving. We teach our children to do that, Lord, and we ought to be doing it ourselves. Something as simple as the golden rule, Lord, is hard for us. 
we are stubborn and stiff-necked. And yet, Lord, you put before us such a wonderful task to manifest, Lord, before a watching world with these others for whom Christ died, these others who are of that imperishable seed, these others who are brothers and sisters because they are likewise children of God, given the spirit of adoption, Lord. Such a beautiful opportunity to show forth love. I pray, Heavenly Father, that we would do such, that our aim would be your glory, Lord. I pray, Heavenly Father, for your blessing upon these words from your scripture and our consideration of them this morning, that they would do works in our heart that honor you and glorify you. I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would watch over us as we go from this place, that we would be mindful of each other, that in those days before when before we see one another, that we would be mindful of one another's burdens, that we would carry those in prayer, that when we have occasion, Lord, for not only prayer but for help, that we would put our hands to that task, Lord. You know the needs of our hearts, Heavenly Father. May your Holy Spirit work in us mightily to do those things which please you. We pray this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.